Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. I'm Ben. We are joined, as always, by our super producer. So shout out to Noel Toucans Brown. Toucans. Toucans. Like the bird? No, no. Like uh, so, cans is a is a slang term that we use around here for headphones. Oh, I thought it was like toucan Sam on the uh, was it Fruit Loops? I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess it worked either way though. It could work either way. It yeah. Could work, but that guy hates birds. Well, he's an audio engineer, so I guess we'll go with two cans, like the two words, two cans. And of course, we leave it up to you. Ultimately, your opinion is the one that matters the most when it comes to this show. Uh, we also, of course. We'll find a nickname for our super producer, Dylan Fagan. I'd like you to think about this one ahead of time, though. Okay. Screaming chicken. (laughs) It fits with today's topic. It does. It does. Dylan, I know you're listening, so hang on. Just give us a chance. You'll see how it all works out. It's like a uh, passive-aggressive nickname that I gave Dylan right there. You know? (laughs) it's. I mean, it it falls right into place with with this topic. Yes. But to call some guy that I work with a screaming chicken... Yeah, that's a little bit aggressive. That's, that's yeah. a little pushy. I, I think it is, yeah. I mean, hope he doesn't take offense to that. Maybe we'll come up with something better uh, between, you know, now and then. Yeah, well, we, we should keep our options open because he is our editor. Well, you know what I mean? Can't come up with anything worse, I guess, at this point. So, But um, we do have uh, we do have another person that we need to mention at the beginning of this podcast. Yes, this was a listener suggestion, and it comes from Andrew S. Andrew S. also goes goes by the name... Brisket Turner, and I like that. Brisket Turner. Brisket. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Andrew writes in, and he says, oh, you know what, this is pretty recent, from 2017, February of 2017, but this one piqued our interest right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, hey, Ben and Scott, I've been listening to your podcast for about two months now. You guys do a great job explaining stuff on cars that I didn't know. For example, your podcast, How to Make a Car Last $300,000, or 300,000 miles, mm-hmm. $300,000, that'd be nice. Uh, how to make your car last 300,000 miles. I now drive differently because of it. That's so cool, Also, man. he's adopting some of our, uh, uh, what would you call it, um, 
ginger uh, ginger tactics, maybe uh, observations. A, uh, yeah, I guess the the way to look, like to drive your car kind of softly. I don't know how yeah. I better say that. Yeah, because in that episode, um, we talk about how how much the way you handle driving matters over time. You know, like sudden stops and starts mm-hmm. will eventually. Uh, punish the machine. Oh, sure, like cold start. Well, of course, cold starts, you can't avoid that, but but revving the engine excessively when it's still cold, et cetera, all that stuff, uh, that all adds up. So he's driving his vehicle differently now. He's got a, a 2003 Chevy S10 with 209,820 miles on it, and he got it from his best friend's dad for free. Can't beat the price. That's the best kind of car, right? Mm. He says there are other problems with it. He mentions all kinds of stuff like there's there isn't a heater or an AC. The ignition doesn't want to work half the time, and and some other minor things too. But honestly, hang in there. That's <laughs> yeah. a great car to own. Don't don't worry about it. It's a good looking vehicle too. He sent in about six photos. Mm-hmm. But here's the uh, here's the thrust of today's program. I was wondering if you guys could do an episode about Pontiac Trans Am. The one, uh, he says specifically, the one from the Smokey and the Smokey the Bandit movie. I know you've kind of covered it in the episode The Best Car Chases, part one or two, but if you could do a review on the Trans Am, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for all the podcasts, Andrew S. And, uh, Andrew, that's a fantastic idea. Mm-hmm. And I know you said specifically the one from the Smokey and the Bandit uh, episode. We're going to talk about um, all Trans Ams, including that one. And I think we're, we are going to start with the, the very genesis of the, the Trans Am nameplate. Mm-hmm. And that goes all the way back to the late 1960s. So we'll get there. Uh, we will eventually make it to the 1977. And I think the tactic that uh, Ben and I talked about ahead of time, or one that I maybe forced on Ben, I don't know, we'll, we'll find <laughs> out, is that uh, there is so much um, minutia in between uh, in, in between 1969, when this thing originated, and 1977, and then later, you know, this car went until 2002. Right. Uh, ran until 2002. So, um, long, long time. 34 years of, of production. So, so much detail. We're going to kind of focus on just a couple of little bits here and there, and hopefully, you know, some of the details, if you're really, really in, intrigued by this one, mm-hmm. you can focus in on a specific model year if, you know, you, you knew somebody that owned one or if you own one yourself. Um, you know, the details are just really tough to get um, get for 34 years of production. There's a lot here. So we're going to hopefully make this a compelling story. I, <laughs> I hope so. We're off to a slow start. <laughs> but but uh, we'll, we'll try to make it interesting for you along the way. And, um, you know, I, I think maybe... And I know this is jumping ahead, and then we'll go back. But sure, sure. Um, the one that he's talking about, the Smoking the Bandit uh, Trans Am, that's really the one that that brought it to uh, like into pop culture, I guess, into mm-hmm. to people's minds. That's the one that a lot of people think of when they think of Trans Am. And that was a 1977 movie that was directed by a guy named uh, Hal Needham. He was a stuntman, and it was a, his directorial debut. As a matter of fact, <laughs> here's the thing: in 1977, this was the second largest uh, grossing film. Right behind, guess what? Hmm. Star Wars. Star Wars came out the exact same year. It would have been number one had it not been for the release of Star Wars that exact same year. So yeah. bad timing on that uh, on that front. But it was a wildly popular movie, v- big big success. Of course, Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, Jerry mm-hmm. Reed, uh, Jackie Gleason. There's a, a bunch of big big names in Hollywood at the time in this film. And it launched a franchise. It really did. This was a huge thing. This is really big for. Well, of course, there's a lot of. Um, uh, what do you call it afterwards? Marketing, I guess, when they have a lot of uh, products that they sell afterwards. Uh, merchandising. Know, hats and, uh, merchandising. T-shirts, hats, uh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> tattoos. I don't <laughs> know. Uh, just a lot of stuff that they had. You know, they had uh, drink cozies and, you know, whatever, keychains, all that kind of stuff. Um, but this was really, really big for Pontiac. It was, a, it was an excellent product placement on their part. Yeah, can we... Uh- can we give uh, just a brief overview of the plot? 
I'd love to set it up. Oh, yeah, yeah. sure, of course. So it's, uh, it starts with bootlegging. And we did an episode on bootlegging also, or we did an episode on how prohibition led to racing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Smokey and the Bandit, there's this wealthy guy from Texas and his kid, and they're looking for a bootlegger who is going to smuggle Coors beer to Georgia, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's how that's how it starts. And that sounds kind of crazy, maybe nowadays, because Coors is not, you know, in the world of craft beer or whatever, Coors is not uh, as highly regarded as, you know, no one's saying it's terrible or anything, but... It's a common off-the-shelf product. There we go. Yeah. Perfect. So, like, why would you... Yeah, why, it. why would you smuggle it from Texarkana, Texas, to Atlanta, Georgia, and have only 28 hours to make it there? That's the whole thing. That was mm-hmm. the, the premise of the story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like hundreds of cases of this stuff, right? In a yeah. full, it was a full semi truck, and of course, the semi truck was driven by uh, Jerry Reed, who went by the name Cletus in the movie, mm-hmm. and uh, Burt Reynolds played the bandit. Is uh, well, his, par- his traveling partner, I guess, would be Carrie Sally Field, and along the way, of course, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite characters. The Jackie Gleason character, <laughs> Buford T. Justice, <laughs> Sheriff Buford T. Justice, who was in hot pursuit the whole time. Right. And, uh, oh, it's just some fantastic scenes. So yeah. it, it's a it's a funny movie. It's it's definitely a gearhead movie. It's fun to watch looking mm-hmm. back because you can appreciate this 1977 Trans Am, you know, and, and other um, ancillary characters, I guess, if you want to call them that, you know, the, the extras, I suppose, right. the extra cars along the way. There were a lot of them. And, uh, again, Pontiac... Uh, placed these these uh, or actually um, I don't know if you can call it placed, but I guess Pontiac offered these vehicles for the use in the film. There were two Trans Ams, 1977, and then there were also a couple of I believe there were two four door Pontiac Le Mans uh, sedans that they also offered up for this production as well. Now the the uh, the Trans Ams, of course, were destroyed. During, right during, during the filming, one was completely destroyed during that infamous bridge jump that they did. Mm-hmm. That was the the end of one of them, and the other one was just kind of along the way, beaten up really badly. Um, some some other interesting stuff about that when we get to the uh, the 1977 model, I guess. But mm-hmm. um, you want to take a step back, Ben, and maybe uh, talk about the uh, the birth of the Trans Am and, the and Genesis. Find out, yeah, where it came from. Yeah, yeah. I, it's an interesting story too. I I hadn't really okay. Full disclosure here. Mm-hmm. I had, and I think everybody knew this, I had a Trans Am. That was my first car. Yeah. I had a 1978, and I, at the time, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I was ignorant about the car mostly at the time, other than I really appreciated it in the movie, just like a lot of people did, you know, in the, yeah. the Smoking the Bandit films. Uh, but at the time, I was a kid in high school. I didn't care to look up the history. I didn't have the Internet really to, uh, you know, to just at the at any whim look up any kind of information I wanted about it. And, you know, production numbers, et cetera, all that stuff had to be found in books and library. Yeah, we're talking microfiche. And I was, you know, I was staying away from that that place at the time. Yeah, uh, you, so- were, you were a hothead. <laughs> <laughs> driving around town in my my hot rotted Trans Am. So, yeah. um, anyways, I wasn't like really focused on you know the original engines and all that you know like all the codes that went along with everything mm-hmm. and keeping everything original. And I just wasn't focused on that. I knew it was a cool car and it was fun. Um, maybe more on that later. But anyways, this thing goes all the way back to 1969, and I guess we can start there. Um, yeah. This this begins with a. Racing series, a racing series called the Trans Am series, and it wasn't originally called the Trans Am series. It was originally called the Trans American Sedan Championship, which started in 1966. Mm-hmm. And 
there there's something interesting here because even before this series um during the 60s GM General Motors was uh using the term Firebird for some of their concept cars. Mm-hmm. So it was already in the the zeitgeist, the concept. But as you said, and as a lot of people might not know, the the Pontiac Firebird comes from racing. Yeah, that's right. It, it was okay. Here's the, uh, the the twisted tale of this whole thing, and it's not it's not really all that twisted. It's that Camaro was first, Firebird was kind of birthed from that, mm-hmm. and then from the Firebird came the uh, the Pontiac Firebird Trans Am, and that, we'll, we'll talk about that progression in just a moment. But in 1966, when um, the SCCA president, who at the time was named John, well. <laughs> He was always named John, but his name was John Bishop. He was the president of the SCC at the time, mm-hmm. and he created this new racing series. And it was again, as I, I said, it was normally or originally called the Trans American Sedan Championship, but they changed it to just the Trans Am series uh, soon after. And there were two categories of racing, and this is important because mm-hmm. uh, there was a there were there were two. I, I should, say, should say classes, maybe that's a better way to say it. There are many many classes now, but um, there was the under two liter group. And then there was the over two liter group, but the but the over two liter group was limited to five liters. Now, what that did at that specific time in history is that it allowed pony cars to compete. Mm-hmm. And so, who who was building pony cars at the time? That was Ford. Of course, GM answered with uh, the Camaro, and um, of course the Firebird. The Firebird was the one for competition, really. Um, and then even later, they you know well we'll talk about you know where the Trans Am came from, but um, homologation rules that were tied to this series resulted in a lot of these offerings being uh, provided for people out on the street. You know, they could you could buy these on the showroom and, and drive them on the streets. Mm-hmm. These were cars that were race cars for the SCCA Trans Am Series back in the, at the time. And these included, like, Camaro. well, uh, Chevy had the Camaro Z28 that, at the time, uh, which was brand new again, I think, in 1967. That was the first year for that one. Um, uh, Mustang, Ford had the uh, the Boss 302 Mustang uh for 1970, I think there was the Barracuda AAR, which stands for, um, I think it's All-American Racing. And there was only one year of that, again, 1970. Mm-hmm. There was the Challenger TA, um, AMC had, you know, Javelins. There was there were all kinds of cars competing in the series at the time. And, of course, Pontiac wanted to kind of up the game, I guess. So, right. So starting in 1966, you know, they, they were already in there at some in some way with, uh, well, Chevy was, not Pontiac. Uh, but Pontiac also wanted to jump in there, and that was the uh, the focus, well, the directive, I guess, from John DeLorean. Yes, that is true. Uh, once again, John DeLorean graces the car stuff world because this this is I know what you're thinking, ladies and gentlemen, and you are correct. This is the same DeLorean who started the ill-fated DeLorean. Motor company, yeah. Later, racked with scandal, but uh, but not mm-hmm. right now. Right now, he's still the good guy. He's still the, the yeah. uh, He's still the guy on the white horse at this at this <laughs> point, right? So, GM. He was uh, he was um, let's see. He was general uh, manager of Pontiac division from 1965 until 1969. But he didn't start there. He started at uh, Packard Motor Company. He then eventually went to Pontiac to become the division head in 1965. And then in 1969. Uh, he moved on to Chevrolet, and then by 1973, he went to, uh, well, DeLorean Motor Car. He went to start DeLorean Motor Car Company, which, again, only lasted until about 1982 before they went bankrupt. But um, he is the genesis of the Trans Am project, really. When he was um, division head of Pontiac between 1965 and 1969, right around, you said it earlier, 1967, Ben, mm. um, 
that is when he decided that he was going to create this group, uh, this this new um, effort, I guess, to race in the series, um, well, competitively. And he created something called the Pontiac Firebirds Sprint Turismo Project. And it started to, you know, it's called PFST, and that started to kind of... um, get mentioned, I guess, more often. People knew about it as early as 1967, Mm mid-1967. So within the next year or so, uh, they decided that, uh, you know, the V6 power was something that was going to have to go. There's there's no way that, you know, this car is going to be competitive in the series with the V6 power. So uh, they didn't quite know exactly what they were going to do with it yet, but they said, you know, it's going to have to have a V8, V8 engine. Mm-hmm. Um, they also wanted to have some external body modifications, something that, you know, would make it better on the track, something that was actually functional on the track. Right. These these are not ornamental enhancements, you know what I mean? They, they partnered with the car designer and builder, a guy named Gene Winfield, uh, and... Ultimately, the improvements that he made found their way into one of the two Palladium Silver 1969 prototypes. Yeah. Now, I have something to say about these prototypes. There were two built. Yeah. One was, uh, as we say, lost to time. We don't know where one of them went. It's in a barn somewhere. It's gone. (laughs) Well, I don't know. It seems like like it'd be found, but you never know. These things turn up, right? There is a, uh, a story about the second one, because the second one for a while was... I'll call it semi-lost. People, some people knew where it was, but not everybody knew where it was. Right. And there is a there's a really good, um, I guess you call it a resurrection story, uh, of the second Pontiac Trans Am prototype. And this was the uh, the one that was owned by well, it was actually the the private vehicle of a guy named Jerry Titus, who was a race car driver uh, for Pontiac back in the day, and. He kept it as his own personal vehicle until about 1970, and then he sold it off to a guy, uh, a private collector, I think somewhere in Kentucky. I can't remember exactly where in Kentucky, but um, it was owned by this guy in Kentucky, and then later it was bought by a car collector when it came up for sale. His name is Kurt Richards, and Kurt Richards completely restored this thing, and you can watch the, the story of this on a, uh, a – it's not a very long video. It's maybe – it's 22 minutes long. If you find this one, it's 22 minutes and 5 seconds. It's called The Trans Am Story. Just search on YouTube. You'll find it. It is, it is very, very interesting. There's a, there's a few uh, sound bites from the son of Jerry Titus. You know, he's he's the one who verified that this was the original. That you know, these these parts that they were finding on the vehicle were definitely the parts that uh, that Gene Winfield, uh, the guy that you had mentioned Ben earlier, that mm-hmm. created these aftermarket parts or these uh, these uh, go fast parts. I don't know what you kind of want to call them. Uh, maybe like exterior body panels and things out of fiberglass and all that for the prototype uh they they all verified that you know this is this is the car it was an, it was the trans am prototype the the lost trans am prototype so it's an interesting tale if you have 22 two minutes and five seconds to watch it <laughs> if you can dedicate the time yeah well if you can dedicate the four hours that it's going to take for us to get through this uh this episode apparently uh no, i'm just joking it's not going to take four hours We'll try to condense it. I think we're I think we're doing we're doing all right here because <laughs> we're we're looking at um we're, we're looking at the early days right of the Trans Am and yeah, the first days yeah the first days and one thing we know for sure is that in that first decade the Trans Am was already taken off you know by I'll jump ahead a little bit by 1979. They were they were making over a hundred thousand cars a year, almost one hundred and twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that number is going to come into play in just a minute because I'm going to have a little uh, um, a dollar amount that is attached to that uh, one hundred and seventeen thousand number in just a moment. But uh, but first, I think we should take a word from our sponsor. 
probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time and range in lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. And we are back before the break, we teased uh, some numbers that'll come uh, come into play in 1979, but I think we need to journey back in time for a second. Just a little bit, and only for a moment, because I just wanted to mention that the actual reveal of this vehicle was it was December 8th of 1968, and they call that a, a mid-year Trans Am release. Mm-hmm. So mid-year is when this thing was, was debuted or unveiled, and it was debuted alongside the brand-new GTO Judge package that they had introduced just to kind of uh, draw attention or to, to uh, I don't know, I guess maybe um, revitalize mm-hmm. you know, the GTO mm-hmm. in, in some way. Uh, and I think the Judge package did just that. But that was at Riverside International Raceway, and there were a lot of media on site. And, you know, there was, a, there was one prototype, and there was also a, a white and blue pre-production version that was on site as well. And I think that's the one that was lost. That must be, right? Yeah. Uh, the other one was silver, the, uh, the prototype we're talking about. Um, but there were, for that first year, again, it was a mid-year release. There were only 697 regular production units that came off the line in that first year. So it's a very low production first year for Trans Am. So if you see one of these available, those are the ones to grab. If they truly are a 1969 Trans Am, 
It's one of only 697 built. But as you mentioned, Ben, by 1979, that number had swelled to 117,108. Mm-hmm. Now, this is this is important. Here's the the, uh, the dollar amount that I had kind of teased a little bit yeah. before. Here's something I, I, again, when I was a kid and I had a Trans Am, I had no idea this was going on. So you would think that, you know, there's a car named the Trans Am. There's the series named the Trans Am. What's the tie-in? Well, you know, we know that it raced in the series, but Pontiac was the one that went the farthest with this. And they said, we're actually going to name our product the Trans Am. Right. However, the SCCA thought, well, that's nice, but, you know, we're going to have to have some kind of licensing agreement with you. And it was a pretty big one, a pretty hefty uh, fee, I guess, because... Each car, each Pontiac Trans Am that came off the line, um, by you know, via this uh, this uh, this offer, this uh, this deal, I guess, that was penned between SCCA and Pontiac, between somewhere between 1970 and 1971, mm-hmm. amounted to five dollars per car that came off the line with the, the Trans Am nameplate. So by the time they get to 1979 and they have those 117,108 cars. This means that SCCA gets a gets a check for over half a million dollars. Yeah, we're almost six hundred thousand dollars for that one year, just for nineteen seventy nine. So they've been producing these ever since. Now, I, I did the inflation calculator thing. If you if you're interested in this, oh yeah. Uh, so I, I went with the nineteen seventy nine number because that was probably. Uh, um, now the way to go, I guess. So nineteen seventy nine, five dollars was the equivalent of sixteen dollars and seventy eight cents today. So five again. So if we extrapolate that five dollars in nineteen seventy nine, that, that amounted to almost six hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars in today's money, that would be a nearly two million dollar check. I mean, it's just under two million dollars. So that's what that's what type of money we're talking about. Just from the production of one product or one vehicle meant for the SECA. That was huge money for them, and it really helped them. It went a long way in, um, as it says, easing some financial issues that uh, that organization had at the time. I can imagine. Right, because at this time in history, the glory days of the series are, you know, in the past. Mm-hmm. So the, they're at a point where every little bit helps. Although, I go, okay, um well, I, yeah, I guess you could say that. I suppose so. There, SECA is still wildly popular. Yes. Um, the Trans Am series is still in existence. You know, they've been around since 1966. You can still go to the Trans Am series and, and uh, you know, check out, you know, what, what they're doing today. So it's still around. Uh, but you're right. I think there was kind of a uh, a glory day era that uh, that had long gone at that point by 1979. And you know, maybe I'm sure along the way there were there were points that recaptured some of that magic, but maybe not as much as the late 1960s, early 1970s. I guess it's fair to say that at the very least they were at kind of a lull. Yeah. At that time. Oh, that's a good. That's a perfect way to say it, Ben. So maybe how about this? Yeah. Um, Maybe we should talk a little bit about the uh, the engine of this vehicle. Oh, and, I've been uh, waiting for this. J- just a little bit of the, of the '69, and then we'll we'll move on. We'll get to the '77, maybe some other uh, some other related stuff. Okay. Um, but let's talk about the the engine that was offered in 1969. Okay, the engine that was offered in 1969. Um, so again, this was a limited production special, right? As as is often the case. Well, every single one of those Trans Ams was considered right. a special. Special unit. Which means that it gets some extra TLC in the performance department. So they'll have a couple of extra, like, top-shelf equipment uh, components. The standard engine was the Ram Air 3 version of the 400-cubic-inch V8. And this was the 400HO with functional Ram Air. High output. Awesome high output. Yeah, and 
though this was new to Pontiac in, in 69, um, the core of the engine dated back to 67. So it still had some stuff. If we, I don't know how deep you want to get into this, Scott. Yeah, maybe not too deep. We don't need to go into the full specs in this whole okay. thing. It's just that it had some extras. It had some, uh, I guess, a little bit more performance tuning that went along with it. And, right. I mean, that, we're talking about things like, you know, it, well, it still had uh, the same compression ratio. It had, you know, a quadrajet-style four-bill carburetor. Uh, same, you know, the same carburetor as the base 400 1969. Uh, but there were, you know, other stuff that, there was other stuff that was a little bit different. Like the block was drilled for four bolt main caps, mm-hmm. um, even though it had two bolt caps installed. Um, there's a hotter cam shaft, so you can imagine it was a little lumpier cam, you know, a little more performance oriented yeah. cam. And that, that, uh, the air induction system and, uh, the exhaust manifolds were redesigned, which all, all of which. <laughs> cast, all, cast iron, by the way. Cast iron, by the way. Yes. <laughs> that was the time. The, it was the time when people weren't as worried about weight. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the, um, this, this all, all this leads us to, uh, one significant thing which I think a lot of people who are fans of Trans Ams have noticed, and you probably noticed when you were driving yours. Although although the paperwork will say this is around 335 horsepower, mm-hmm. that's probably... Mm. Well, it's a conservative estimate. Conservative is a nice way to say it. Yeah. Well, I mean, because that was supposed to be only five more horsepower than the than the base model 400 engine. So you know that with all the extra add-on stuff that they had uh, had 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 done to this, um, that you know that's a, that's definitely a conservative estimate. They were trying to um, kind of underrate the thing on paper so that maybe it was a I don't want to say a sleeper, but uh, but it had a lot more power than you might think. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if you wanted to up that even even more, you could select there was there was an optional. 400 Ram Air 4 selection that you could make. However, um, only 55 of those 697 Trans Ams built were ever equipped with the Ram Air 4, um, and they were all installed in the coupe bodies, and that's because uh, I think it was kind of an expensive option. Um, it was almost six hundred bucks. Yeah, it was ex- well, six hundred bucks at that time. Yeah, it was a lot of money. So yeah, it cost a lot to add that. But but here's the thing. Um, you know, there were, uh, it, this is the one that's most desirable to collectors as well. There were a lot of differences between this one, um, and, you know, the internal components, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. I mean, cylinder head design being one of those, but, uh, the factory rating on this thing was 345 horsepower at 5400 RPM. Now, you have to take into account, however, that this engine was also the same engine that they used in the, in the GTO in the same year. And it was rated around 370 horsepower. So, and that one they said was underrated as well. They had they had kind of backed that one down on paper. So, uh, you can you can kind of see what's going on here. They're 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 um, oh I don't know what, what would you say they underrate them purposely again. Right. So that uh, and I don't know if this is like this is probably this is what pre EPA days. So sure. it wasn't that that wasn't the concern. This might have just been trying to uh, kind of. What snowball the competition? You know, maybe uh, again a little, a little bit of sandbagging. Sleep. That's that's it, sandbagging. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. So probably a little bit of that too. So um, interesting tactics that they had. Now you might be also surprised to learn that it, this, these Trans Ams, uh, I guess the the base form of the Trans Am mm-hmm. came with a three speed manual transmission. Now it sounds a little funny these days to have a three speed manual, but that was not all that uncommon. As a floor shifter. Of course, it was a heavy-duty unit. Yeah. Um, but very few actually were delivered with that gearbox intact. So yeah, the majority actually came with the optional uh, 
Muncie wide ratio four speed. Yeah, that's right. And that same Muncie, that four speed, was also offered on the Ram Air 4. In fact, on the Ram Air 4, that was the only option you could get. And Pontiac was also willing to fit a three speed turbo hydromatic automatic against either the Ram, either of the Ram Air engines. Uh, you know, on the option chart, if you if you wanted the automatic, you could get it, mm-hmm. a three-speed automatic, which wasn't, well, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't great, it wasn't terrible. Was it the best? No, it wasn't the best. So it, it's weird because you can tell now already in the beginning there were clear differentiations between Firebirds, right? And not all Firebirds were created equally. Sometimes you'll hear uh, automotive historians refer to things as, you know, lesser firebirds, <laughs> which is which is weird to it's weird to hear. Yeah, but. well, I mean, I guess you could, if you wanted to look at the pecking order, if you want to call it that, it would be you know Camaro, Firebird, Firebird Trans Am. If you want to call it Firebird, you could just call it Trans Am if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, if if you wanted to like place it in order that way, that's typically the way it went. And again, that kind of depended on how you had your Firebird option and how you had your Trans Am option. You mm-hmm. could you could kind of pick and choose and kind of make these a little better, a little bit a little bit stronger in some areas. I, I think everybody gets the idea that you know if you're ordering your own vehicle, uh, you can really kind of go out on a limb as long as you have uh, the money to back that up, right? You can you can order right. just about any option. You could order the police package for a lot of cars too. And made him you know what let's let's move on because i'm i'm going to get into a rabbit hole here that i don't want to get into i uh, do you want to talk about the chassis uh, maybe maybe a little bit all right so th- this is the thing that, that that the trans am didn't necessarily deviate from the general firebird underpinnings however they had a few really discreet but significant upgrades that that made this um a special product you know something something unique yeah yeah so uh herb adams uh racer and a guy well known as a, a suspension expert, uh, had earlier said that the soft rubber bushings were allowing unwanted deflection, especially in steering control mm-hmm. and feedback uh, when you had larger wheels and tires. So, and of course, the Trans Am did. Yeah, and of course, the Trans Am did. So they used some high density control arm bushings to combat this. Um, from the mandated addition of 14 by 7 inch wheels. So that that sounds like a small thing, but it makes a difference in handling. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. Everything was about track performance, right? So um, things like the, the uh, this is a terrible name for the, for the brakes, high effort power front disc brakes. Now, high, when you say high effort power front disc brakes, it makes it sound like you have to put in the high effort in right. order to make them work. Yeah. That's, I think that was not what they meant. These are high effort they're putting out. High effort. Uh, so, so power front disc brakes with single piston calipers, heavy duty, heavy duty coil springs, hydraulic shocks, and again, the high effort variable ratio power steering box were included. <laughs> now, again, I would drop the high effort part of that if it was if it was me. Yeah. Um, also, this is pretty significant too. There was a one inch diameter anti roll bar with improved end links that contributed to greater corner stability in the front end. And of course, the front end being completely revamped, they had to do something to the back end, so they right. included. Heavy-duty versions of the rear semi-elliptic multi-leaf springs, and they also had staggered hydraulic shocks. And you could also get a safety track. Well, something called this. I think this is a brand name, but safety track. Um, yeah. Limited slip differential. Uh, you get. Well, I think the uh, the standard was also finned cast iron drum brakes at the back. So uh, again, still still drum brakes at the back, but discs at the front. And if you wanted to, Pontiac offered Coney adjustable shocks as optional equipment. Um, you could get other optional equipment too, and I find this one pretty interesting. 
Uh, you could get re- what was really popular, these, these rally two wheels. And then there was also an option for wire wheel covers. And get this, a single buyer opted for that. So there was one of them made with wire wheels <laughs> in 1969. But you know what? It's funny, but that makes it valuable. Yeah, because it's the only one. I know. Isn't that strange? It's like those little things, like just something small like that. If you were to find that original one, that would be worth something because of that. Scarcity is weird, it, man. <laughs> it's a strange thing. It, it might not be the most desirable feature. You know, I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. But um, it just seems like, you know, little things like that really add up in uh, mm-hmm. in, in auction value. So can we hop inside the vehicle real quick? Yeah, sure. I just want to look at some of this stuff. As you know, this is a pony car, which means that there's an emphasis on performance. A Rolls-Royce, this is not. Mm -hmm. And it's not intended to be. So the interior of the Firebird um, really depended on the, I guess, the the package it went with. But what was standard was... Uh, upholstery called Marokide and a uh, formula style steering wheel was added later on. Marokide. Marokide. <laughs> is that like Corinthian leather? <laughs> yeah. I wonder. I mean, I wonder what that is really, but uh, I have to check out a 69 Trans Am. Now you could go up. You could go up a step and get, you know, wood grain inlay around the instruments, um, a passenger side, uh, <laughs> The real word is assist grip, but I think we all know what they're actually called. <laughs> yeah, we know what those are. They're, the handles. Yeah, the O handles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so the um, uh, then then they have vinyl seating surfaces, door uh, or door panels, and rear side panels with armrests that you could get, and uh, they would have you know some more. I guess aesthetic things, you know, like a molded trunk mat or rail garnish or side rail garnish moldings, right? Yeah. Uh, only six people got the folding rear seat. Well, there you go. Another another valuable option, right? I wonder if wire wheels guy, that's who he is in my head. So though. if he has wire wheels and a folding rear seat, I wonder if that would be uh, be anything. But uh, you know what fi- uh, What I find most interesting maybe is the, the outside, of course, because they had, yeah. uh, you know, there, there were... Um, well, we'll talk about the decals and stuff like that too. But um, there was a 60-inch wide rear deck spoiler, which actually provided uh, provided downforce at higher speeds. And the paint—I mean, that's that's something that a lot of people focus on too. There, were, there was a uh, a paint called Cameo Ivory paint that was trimmed with something called Tyrol Blue, uh, which were dual racing stripes. Um, and they also had this really cool. I mean, if you look at the hood, these are really easy to distinguish because um, they had this. Um, it was a real, of course, it was a low, wide hood, and it had these dual ram air induction scoops that were set right up near the front of the hood. And if you look at them, you can look at a model or anything of the, you know, the Trans Am and check this out, but the that hood design, that hood scoop design was just so cool. And it's so distinctive for that first year. And along with the white white and blue paint scheme, which, by the way, was a nod um, to the Ameri- what was called America's International Sports Car Racing Color Scheme. So, you know, when we went racing overseas, we use this white with blue stripes uh, uh-huh. paint, paint scheme, and it was uh, it was undeniably you know the the American paint scheme, and a lot of well actually all countries that they compete have a uh, a paint scheme that they they adhere to when they race internationally. Mm-hmm. And you know we we can't be mistaken about this. This this became iconic. Even people who don't consider themselves car people will recognize the Trans Am. Well, there's a lot of a uh, lot of exterior cues that lead them to to mm-hmm. differentiate these between uh, standard. Fi- and I'll say standard; it's not standard, but a standard Firebird. And 
You know, at this point, Scott, let, let, let me ask you, you want to talk a little bit more about the uh, the famous bandit Firebird? Yeah, let's move on at this point. I, I mean, I think we've we've probably exhausted a lot of our information about the 69, clearly, right? <laughs> uh, too much, maybe. Uh, but, it, but it is important to know where they come from. But yeah, I would like to talk about the 1977 Bandit Trans Am, or, you know, a lot of people call it the Bandit Trans Am. Mm-hmm. But let's do that after a word from our sponsor. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you will always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can even alert you before you go too low or when you're too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see, like more time and range and lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. And we're back. Don't call it a comeback. Well, you could call it a comeback because we just came back. Uh, we have looked at the origin of the Firebird and the Trans Am, and we are now exploring in a little more detail the 1977 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am, a.k.a. the Bandit Trans Am, a.k.a. the reason that so many people immediately went out to buy one. Mm-hmm, that's right. And recently, I think it was, boy, I think it was somewhere around 2015, 2016, wasn't it, uh, that there was a a Barrett-Jackson auction in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. A 1977 Trans Am that was used to promote the Smokey and the Bandit movie sold for $550,000 at this Barrett auction uh, uh 
Barrett-Jackson auction, rather. In, it, I think it was in January of, of 2016, I think it was when it was. Yeah. Now, yeah. this is incredible. I mean, a lot of people really raised their eyebrows when this happened. Now, it was a... Um, Again, it wasn't one that was actually used in the movie. It was one that was used to promote the movie. That's, right. That's the difference. So this would be on a circuit making appearances. And it's pristine. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's in really, really good condition. They got a picture of Bert himself leaning <laughs> on it. <laughs> that's right. And I'm sure he signed it somewhere. I'm not, you know, 100% confident of that, but I'm sure he did. A lot of people like to take these older Transams that have been restored, take them to Burt Reynolds and have him sign them. Uh, you know, as if they're part of the movie history or something. Right. But, um, you know, this one, I think, I believe this one is signed by him. It is. All yeah. right. And it, again, I want to point out, I don't know if I said this earlier, but this is not the very first black and gold, uh, you know, combination Trans Am that they created. Um, it is, however, a 1977 special edition Trans Am. Um, it had, you know, the big gold bird on its hood, and uh, it's the car that kind of made, you know, the, this logo, this big, you know, the firebird, the, the screaming yeah. chicken, legendary. Um, but, again, it's not the very first one that had the black and gold combination. It was just, the, like, maybe the most famous. That's the way we'll put you it. You know, some interesting trivia about this, Scott. This specific promo car is an automatic. Or is it really? Yeah, I wonder if the, I, I wonder. I never paid attention to this. I wonder if the ones used in the the film were automatic. I doubt it. They're probably manual transmission. I doubt it too. I, and I haven't watched the film recently enough to you know like to focus in on something like that. But I bet it was a manual transmission. Uh, now the cars in the movie, of course, we said they were destroyed, right? They yeah. were not. They were not 1977 model cars, by the way, which I find really interesting. The cars that were provided for them, of course, you know they they shoot these movies early. So they wanted to get out the latest product, and the way to make them like, kind of dress them up, they knew what was coming for for Pontiac Trans Am early, of course, in the Pontiac division. So they offered up these vehicles that had kind of these, and I won't say prototype, I'll say early production maybe. They mm-hmm. took the front ends off of a 1977, and by the front end I just mean that front plastic clip uh, that had the headlights you know, behind it. Um, they, they added 1977 front ends to 1976 models. So the cars in the movie were 1976 uh, the differentiation would be, or the main difference would be, that the 76 model had round headlights, where the 1977 model, they were going to switch over to square headlamps. And so when you see them, you spot them, you can know instantly that this is 1977 versus a 76. That's how they, they could tell. Um, yeah. But I find it interesting that they do stuff like that. They allow these um, these early release um Products, you know, like I, I, I don't know if they, at the time, they were so worried about spy photographers like they are now. Probably not. Right, I don't think yeah. it was as as big a thing as it is now. Um, but apparently, they didn't have any problem, you know, letting the people on the uh, the studio lot know what the seventy sevens were going to look like. Yeah, the, I have a thing that I think is really cool for the listeners, Scott. Sure. And I'm trying to figure out if I should let the badger out of the bag now or wait till the end. Oh, if it's really cool, why don't you hang on to it? All right. Just a minute or two, because I've only got a couple more things I want to share. Okay, really. but I've officially foreshadowed this. <laughs> I promise right. it's cool. I promise it's worth it. All right, it. we've got to get to it. We can't forget it. Right on. I okay. got you. All right, so here's here's the thing. Uh, I mentioned that it wasn't the very first one. Now, the black and gold paint graphics and the gothic type, typeface and all that had appeared on earlier Pontiac prototypes, and including a 50th anniversary edition Trans Am that came out in 1976. So, again, the year that they were trying to make look like, like a 77. Um, what how what was missing, however, from the 1977 special edition car 
was the 455 cubic inch engine that had earlier that had given the earlier cars the street cred, and then in its place as kind of the top performance engine that was uh, you know available, there was this optional 200 horsepower 400 cubic inch V8, which is the famous uh, I'll say famous the TA 6.6 liter, uh, which uh, you know of course was designated by a, a badge that was on the the shaker hood scoop we didn't even talk about the shaker hood scoop but the shaker hood scoop was a cool feature too um i love to watch that thing and my old my old trans am my, my own 78 i used to just kind of love to watch that thing rumble as i was driving it was such a cool feature i thought it was non-functional on the one that i had which was pretty lame i guess <laughs> really <laughs> when you think about it the earlier ones were functional by 78 it was non-functional but just kind of sat on top of the engine it yeah. got the airflow from somewhere else i probably could have you know swapped it out with a functional one but never did uh it's just a, a neat feature but it looked really cool with the cutout hood thing um all right see if i'm digressing here so the 6.6 was available with either a, a Borg Warner Super T10 four-speed manual transmission or a turbo hydromatic 350 automatic, except in California, where all the Trans Ams were fitted with a 185 horsepower, 403 cubic inch Oldsmobile V8 and an automatic transmission. So if you were in California, you were just kind of out of luck. You were all the way down to 185 horsepower in this car that, you know, by the way, weighs 3,800 pounds. So it's a heavy car. Yeah, no kidding. It's deceptively heavy. It's not, a, it doesn't look all that big. If you stand next to one, it's, it's big now mm-hmm. compared to what's on the streets now, but, um, it was deceptively small at the time. But again, 3,800 pounds. That's a heavy car. Lots of metal in that thing. Lots of rusty metal in that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, you know, maybe two years after production. Oh man, cast iron. Though. Oh, well, they, those things, they, they were notoriously, uh, um, I don't know if you want to say not treated or just poorly treated at the factory. Uh, yeah. so that, you know, and if you're in the rust belt, uh, those things, they, the, the panels just disintegrated after about two or three years of, of salt, you know, on the roads and, you know, just maybe, you know, lack of, you know, rinsing that stuff off. Or if you live near the coast, maybe, uh, the panels just disappeared on the thing. They were awful, really bad. I'm glad we're past that time now. Yeah. Cars, yeah. cars are made so much better now for, you know, rust prevention, rust protection. Well, material science has just gone it's, leaps and bounds. It's pretty rare now. Pretty rare. Not not entirely 100% gone, but it's pretty rare to see a car rusting out like that. A modern car. Yeah, yeah. They're mostly going to be older now just because the, the coatings are different. Yeah, and the underlying material is often not metal. But right. Then, but then when it is metal, you would almost have to have an accident or have a scrape that goes so deep that it, that it mars the, uh, the metal surface. But again... Back then, it wasn't unusual to see a car that looked like Swiss cheese in the panels. <laughs> and, and mine did. You know, the back panels looked like yeah. Swiss cheese. They were terrible. They were getting eaten Just awful. Pump. They had the flap in the wind. They were so bad. Oh, man. And <laughs> almost flap in the wind. But, uh, but yeah, they're pretty bad. And, uh, um, again, just different time, different materials, all that. But, um, okay, so here's the thing. If you're shopping for a Trans Am today, we're not. We're almost done here. So we'll get oh, to boy. your your, uh, your moment here, Ben, at the end with the, the, the special treat. Special treat? What do you say it was? Maybe a secret? No, not a secret. It was uh, a big news? It's the big, yeah, big news. It's a okay. big reveal. <laughs> I like special treat. Special treat sounds like we're going to feed people. Okay, all right. I don't want to get anybody hangry. All right, all right, it's big news. All right, so um, I guess maybe we could talk just a little bit about current value because that's on a lot of people's minds. Yeah, if you want to get one of these now, and a lot of people do, you know, for nostalgia purposes or, you know, this is the car they had in high school or they wanted in high school or whatever. Uh, But if they, you know, this uh, this article, and I think it's from, uh, I want to say it's from Hemmings. Yeah, it's Hemmings Motor News. They say if you're shopping for a 1977 Trans Am today, 
The good news is that the cars are plentiful enough that you can find a nice example in the $20,000 range and projects car, project cars for $8,000 and under, way under in some cases. Now, I would say way under in some cases. Those are the ones that are in the condition like what I had, way under $8,000. Yeah. I mean, those are the ones that are rusted out and rotted. You don't want those. But um, if you're looking for a, a well-equipped one, you know, that's uh, that's in great condition, you know, like an, uh, a, what they call a show-stopping SE with black interior, four-speed, you know, the 200-horsepower 400, a CB radio, <laughs> a CB radio, mm-hmm. um, you better be pre- prepared to spend upwards of $40,000 according to popular pricing guides. Now, um, Hemmings and Edmonds and all those, you know, they, they kind of weigh in on this about what the price is in just a moment, but... Uh, there was one that was recently listed in Hemmings. I think it was a 77 Trans Am Special Edition with an automatic transmission, a private seller, and they were asking just under $70,000 for this one. Sheesh. And that's not a, uh, that's not one that was, you know, used to promote the movie or anything, of course. Uh, that one goes for half a million. So the trend, I guess, if you want to look at the trend, since about 2012, the trend is up. In 2016, uh, the value trend was somewhere around $41,300. So uh, they are expensive if you want to pick up one today that's in really good condition. Of course, you can have one restored. You can restore it yourself. Yeah. Uh, but you know the pitfalls there, you know, that you might end up spending more money to restore it than mm-hmm. it would be valued at when you're done. That happens a lot with people. I mean, uh, we, we don't give advice. We've had somebody write in recently, and mm-hmm. if you're listening right now, and I hope you are, um, just because, you know, you like Trans Ams, like I like Trans Ams, mm-hmm. uh, we just don't give that kind of advice. We just, we just can't do it. Um, it's ultimately, it's ultimately up to you. We can, we can, however, as Scott said, give a word of caution going into a restoration project, um, even if, you're all your your eyes are dotted and your T's are crossed. You know what I mean. Even if you do everything right by the book, extensive research before you get in there, the truth of the matter is that you have no way of predicting what else you might in, end up, you know, quagmired in. Well, exactly, and that's why we can't offer the advice. So the question, you know, would be. Should I restore it, or should should I you know buy one that's in poor condition and restore it? Yeah. Or should I buy one that's already complete and and you know ready to go? And, and we just can't answer that question. There's there's too many variables. So yeah, uh, and I I don't even know if I use the word quagmire correctly. I don't know if you can use it that way. Yeah, maybe. In, I no, I think that's right. Embroiled. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's better. Bogged like it down. Yeah, that's better. Even better. Yep. Yeah. All right. So I think I've pretty much exhausted my, uh, my Trans Am material, at least what I have in front of me. And I could probably talk for, I don't know, 20 more hours, Ben, about my own experience with yeah. my, my first car, my Trans Am. And I did a little bit on our first car episodes. You did? So a little bit more. If you want to, you know, listen to that, that's fine. And there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but I can't I would, remember. I, did you give it a nickname? No, I did not. I didn't. I've never been one to name my cars. No, no, never. I've had friends that have named every car they've ever owned, but yeah. I've never, uh, never done it myself. You? You ever name a car? Uh, I have in the past, but they haven't been like um, anthropomorphized kind of names. Oh, I see. You know what I mean? So it's not like here's Dan, my car. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's not like yeah, it's it's not like um, you know. Uh, Chelsea and I are heading out to Savannah. Yeah, so you call it like the the silver bullet or something like yeah, that. Something, some, yeah, something cool. Something cool. Yeah, or something lame. But uh, <laughs> all right. So what's this this big news? What do you what do you get? Holy smokes, man! I'm glad you asked. I've been on the edge of my seat. 
trying to trying not to spill the beans okay. early, but I was looking into the pricing on these cars too, right? And, yeah, and you're spot on. A project car you can get in for eight thousand dollars, but you really don't know how much it's actually going to cost you to make it drivable. Okay. Um, and if you want to get one of the nice ones, one of the you know like the premier. Burt Reynolds touched it or whatever, farted around it, kind of, kind of Trans Am. That's going to be like a, you know, that could easily be a half million dollars. But today, until August 2017, you, Scott, me, Noel, Dylan, everybody listening, everybody can enter into the 40th anniversary 2017 Bandit giveaway. What's that? So, to promote this, uh, Burt Reynolds is sponsoring a uh, Bandit Trans Am giveaway that celebrates the 40th anniversary of smoking in the Bandit. Mm. So he personalized it more so than just like signing it. He did he did uh, a bunch of stuff with this. Um, it has a certificate of authenticity. He signed it. Uh, you've got the. All, all the custom stuff. It's basically they they. It's the movie car. He didn't build the engine or anything, did he? Because he's kind of old. Burt. No, I mean, no. I I wonder if he you know. he smelted the the iron himself. I mean, I like Burt Reynolds. Don't get me wrong, but uh, <laughs> but I just don't know if he's you know a, a skilled engine builder at this point in his life. So <laughs> oh, you're ignoring the whole thing. No, no, I totally I I backed you up. I didn't oh, smell metal, Joe. No, fine, fine, fine. I thought it was a good joke, Scott. <laughs> Thank you. I needed that validation. <laughs> I needed validation. So the grand prize is one 1977 Pontiac Trans Am customized to the hilt, one Stetson hat. Okay. Uh, the um, Some more memorabilia for the Trans Am that I think they just put in the car. Mm-hmm. And $15,000 to go toward uh, paying Uncle Sam, the oh, IRS. All right. Makes sense, right? I it's, mean, it's weird because remember when Oprah gave away all those cars? Oh, yeah. And it was this huge controversy because well, all of a sudden these people had this tax bill? It was a disaster. It was a disaster, but we all we all learned something. Yeah, yeah we did, especially the people in the audience. So if you want a Trans Am, you have until August 29th, 217, look at me, 2017, to go to com. And search for the bandit car. And we're not associated with this in any way, nope. so whatever happens, happens. But uh, I might enter that myself. I'd love to win that car. Um, you know, there, I think there's other stuff going on too. There's there's a company that is taking 2017 Camaros and changing them into uh, Trans Ams. You know, there's a body there's a body uh, switch over. There's yeah. engine changes going on. I, I only w- looked at this for two or three minutes. It looked like it was really impressive. I want to say that the numbers were like. Um, over a hundred thousand dollars for the car, you know. You, plus, you have to give them the donor car, you know, the uh, the new model, mm-hmm. uh, Camaro. But uh, you know, there's their body switches that go on. There's engine changes, and I think that the the price was or the uh, the horsepower was somewhere around like eight hundred and forty. If you went for the top end, uh, you know, optional package that they mm-hmm. had, they offered it was supercharged version, mm-hmm. eight hundred and forty horsepower, and I think it was like seven hundred and thirty pound feet of torque at the wheels. Uh, so these are really strong, strong vehicles. Yeah. Um, the factory that's doing this, I, I think it's in Florida, if I remember. Uh, they wouldn't allow the person that was doing the the show, the review of these vehicles, to drive any of them because every single one of them 
is a, is a custom order. You know, someone has delivered that to be built, and they just couldn't allow it to go out on the road that way. So they had kind of a factory test vehicle that was a little bit underpower compared to the, the, the big version that they make, you know, the, the most expensive monster version. Um, so you couldn't really drive that one, but uh, it looked very impressive, and I think they look really cool. I, I know I've seen the the Trans Am on the the auto show circuit. I think it was just yeah. even last year. Yeah. Looked looked really good. The modern Trans Am. I'm, you know, maybe it's nostalgia, Ben, but I would buy one. I yeah. would. I would. It's it's so unique. It's so interesting looking. I would get one. I know it's flashy. I you might get tired of it. Yeah, I might get tired of it, but but I think it's a cool thing to have. It'd be great to take it on a road rally. Oh, <laughs> it sure would. Which brings us to some uh, our big reveal. We we mentioned that we went out um, with a rally North America to the Ohio Valley 700 with. Uh, a, a lot of crucial help from our friend and longtime listener, Glenn Beck. Yeah, this was late in 2016. And we ended up making a documentary about it with our fantastic crew. And it is now online. It's live. You can check it out on Amazon. Uh, but wait, Scott. But wait, Ben, you might be saying. Uh, I don't have Amazon Prime. Well, have no worries. You can watch it for free. Yeah, everybody gets to watch it for free regardless if you have a Prime account or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just so, uh, want you to check it out. It is a look at, <laughs> in some ways, a very humbling look at a uh, at, at our very first road rally and our experience uh Learning the ropes. Yeah, and this is a this is a long uh, it's a long form program. It's so like it's a documentary. It, this is I'll, I'll tell you, and I'm going to toot our own horn here just a little bit. But this is no YouTube video, Ben. This is something. This looks this looks really nice. I'm I'm super pleased with the way this turned out. I think uh, I think I'm just I'm really happy. I was I, I don't want to say surprised by it because I knew what we were creating was was quality. You know, we have good equipment here at, at the studio to use, but to see that on a big screen. It's really impressive. I mean, it, it looks nice. I, I think I think fans of car stuff are really going to dig this this video. Check it out. It's called the Great American, uh, the Great North American Road Rally, mm-hmm. and you can find it on the house. It, all you have to do is search "How Stuff Works" and it'll come up. Yeah, yeah. And so we wanted to to thank our fantastic crew that put it together. Uh, we had Casey and our producer Noel went with us, and then we also uh, we had our friend and coworker Chandler edit this and. Tyler, everybody, everybody put a little bit of uh, their their blood, sweat, and tears in this thing. Oh, definitely, yeah, so. and uh, and we're super happy with the end product. It's really, really, I, I feel it's really, really nice. Take a look at it and see what you think too. Yeah, and we'd I, love to get some reviews. Yeah, I want to get back out on the road, and if I win a Firebird, I hope you don't resent me, Scott, because <laughs> I'm going to go on a road rally. Hey, I'm going to put I'm going to put a link up on our Facebook page at some point to okay. that, and I hope it comes. Uh, you know, I hope that link appears before this episode airs, but. Uh, if it doesn't, just go to Amazon and search for Amazon's Amazon Video and search How Stuff Works for the Road Rally, and you'll find it. And, uh, again, tell us what you think. We'd love to hear. And while you're online, if you want to check out any of the other audio episodes we've ever done, then you are in luck. You can go to carstuffshow.com and check out every single one. I don't know. We don't even really keep track of how many there are. No, right now. We, it always sneaks up on us. Yeah, yeah, no telling. We'll we'll figure we'll we'll figure it out before we get to one thousand. How about that? I, <laughs> I, I don't know. That's a big promise. That we'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. And somebody just write in and tell us when we accidentally hit that number. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also, as Scott said, check out our Facebook and Twitter where we are Car Stuff HSW. And our last biggest thank you goes to Brisket T for the excellent suggestion. Oh, we call him Brisket Turner. We call him Brisket Turner? Yeah, Brisket Turner, but we'll call him Andrew S. How about that? Okay. Brisket Turner, a.k.a. Andrew S., thank you. Uh, thank you immensely. We thought this was a fascinating topic, and there's a lot of stuff here. And uh, you might have just got me a free car, man. Uh, or, your, or yourself. Maybe. Uh, Maybe. So thank you so much. And if you would like to take a page from Brisket's book and write to us directly with an idea for something we should cover in the future, your own stories about the Firebird or, you know, Burt Reynolds, we're open. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Our best ideas come from you. So write to us directly. We are Car Stuff at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility viking committed to exploring the world in comfort journey through the heart of europe on an elegant viking longship with thoughtful service cultural enrichment and all-inclusive fares discover more at viking.com